Well, two words you don't expect to use together are opera and cowgirls, but we have done that now, and aren't we blessed? Thank you, ladies, for our beautiful music, and we want a little something else at the end, so y'all get your minds ready for that. Turn in your Gospel of John to chapter 5. John chapter 5, we continue our sermon series from the Johannine Gospel, Do You Wish to Get Well? Have you ever been tempted to focus on the wrong thing? The irony of the story before us is that the most religious men missed the miracle performed by the Messiah because they were focused on their own traditions. They actually lament that the lame man was healed on the Sabbath more than they rejoice over the miraculous that now he can walk. When we are tempted to miss the main event by our fixation sometimes on the marginal. Well, the first four verses we've already read, I call that waiting, waiting. The the title of the first four verses is waiting. It begins with, After these things, chapter 5, verse 1. That's probably nothing more than John saying something along these lines. Now, the next thing I want to tell you is, after these things. Now, the next story I want to tell you is, we learn here in these first verses that Jesus is going to the Feast of the Jews. Now, often in John's gospel, we have Jesus going up to Jerusalem for feast, and sometimes we're told it's the Passover, sometimes it's tabernacles, sometimes it's dedication or Hanukkah. But on this occasion, the particular feast is not identified. All we know is the next story John wants to tell us is about some unspoken Jewish feast where Rabbi Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Well, why the The feast or the festival remains unnamed. The specific place is clear. Notice, by a pool pool by the sheep gate called Bethesda. Several scholars have suggested that John references these two twin pools that are beneath St. Anne's Monastery. Surprisingly, these pools were about the size of a football field. And they were, are you ready? 20 feet deep. There were two pools side by side. He says five porches. There was one porch on the outside and then one in between. It was probably a place for public bathing. One pool for the men, one for the women, a porch between, a porch all around. And, well, that's where we find our people huddled together. Sick folks, blind, lame paralyzed. Now look at the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4, waiting for the moving of the waters. Now right there with the beginning of the word waiting, do you have a bracket in your Bible? Does it turn to italics? Is it at the bottom of the page? Is there something that tells you there's a little something different about the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4? Well, what's different is those portions were not in the original copy of John's gospel, but rather a scribe no photocopiers in those days, is writing down John, and he gets there, and he realizes, we won't know, the reader won't know why the blind and the lame are gathered around the pool, and so he adds a little explanation of his own. 
waiting for the moving of the waters. For the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then was first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Well, the scribe wants you to know that all the sick people had gathered around this pool, Bethesda, because, well, because the angels, it was said, would come and bubble the water. Maybe there was a natural intermittent spring that would bubble sometimes, and they interpreted it as the movement of an angel. I don't know. Maybe it was a movement of an angel. It doesn't matter. But something made the sick folk gather around, and when the water bubbled, first man in was healed. Well, verses 5 and 6, I call this a certain man, a certain man. A certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? All of a sudden, the main character of the story, nameless as he is, the certain man, we now for four decades, almost, he has been paralyzed. And we don't know exactly the invalid's illness, but in verse 7, we realize that he's paralyzed or he's lame. John wants us to know this detail of, of nearly four decades of infirmity because we'll know the man is absolutely and utterly hopeless. Well, Jesus the healer walks amongst the multitude. He approaches the, the certain man and poses a potent question. Do you wish to get well? As each one of us has our own journey intersects the journey of Jesus we too must examine ourselves to make certain that indeed we want to move from brokenness to wholeness, from sin to salvation. Shockingly, many are quite content to remain in their brokenness as many an Eastern beggar loses a good living by becoming cured of his disease. We too can become so settled with our own sinful condition that we have not only lost all hope of being made well, but actually we have lost all desire to be made well. You see that? I mean, when you first hear the question, do you wish to get well, you think, well, of course he's paralyzed. Of course he wants to be made well. But not all who are sick want to be made well. Not all who are broken want to be made whole. Not all who are sinners are looking for salvation. And so Jesus poses the question to the certain man now sick for four decades, do you wish to be made well? Maybe that's the Christ question to you today. Maybe you watching by way of television, that's his question for you today. Do you wish to be made well? K. Arthur remembers coming out of the old city of Jerusalem. 
All of a sudden, she hits the noise of the lumbering buses and the honking horns of the busy taxis, and the sunlight rushes in that wasn't, that was walled off by the old city. And, well, when she hits the sunlight, there's a, a man sitting on the ground. He's happily conversing with the other beggars, but when a Western tourist comes out, all conversation ceased. A hand went up for, for begging for alms. His dark eyes looked, and another hand went and pulled up the pant leg to show there was a, a really bad ulcer there. It was bright pink, glazed over with purulent patches, glistening the sun. It couldn't be missed. A nurse at heart, she said, I wanted to go and cleanse the wound and medicate the wound and, and banish the wound from the dust of the traffic. His leg really needed tending, and if the ulcer was left along, it might actually get to the bone, and why, he might even lose his leg. Arrested by his plight, she writes, I stopped, and I, I was startled, and I, I stared at his leg. My friend gently took me by the elbow and pushed me on towards our destination. I was a tourist, and I didn't know how these things worked. She proceeded to tell me, quote, this man does not wish to be made well. He made his living from his wound. Well, no need to confront the complexities of modern life in Israel. When one could sit in the dust and dirt of Jerusalem, and receive pity and a few shekels every few moments. My wounded beggar could have been healed. The hospital doors were open to him, she writes. It was an easy enough treatment, but he did not wish to be made well. How about you this morning? Do you want to be made well? Do you want to leave your brokenness and move to wholeness? The next two verses are entitled, Arise, Take Up, 7 and 8. Arise and take up. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. Three commands. Arise, Take up your pallet and walk. Quite clearly, Jesus is taking the initiative in the story. The man doesn't even identify Jesus as a possible healer. In fact, even after Jesus heals him, he doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know the identity of the Lord. Well, he says, it's, it's bad. The water bubbles. Somebody else has a friend that helps them in. Somebody dashes before me. And, well, it was a race for a redeemed body, and he had lost every time. So Jesus gives him those three commands. Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. We already know from chapter 1 that the voice of the one who says, arise, take up your pallet and walk, is the one who created the cosmos. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. And nothing was created that wasn't created by our Jesus. Well, immediately the man obeys. No one like any other healing, there is no mention made of the man's faith. Sometimes in these healing stories, 
the one healed exhibits some faith, but we need to know that Jesus is not limited by your faith or your lack of faith. On this occasion, the man doesn't even know what's going on. He has no faith. He doesn't know who Jesus is. But Jesus still says, get up, arise, and walk. 9 through 12, on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath. Now, this is where we get to the meat of the matter. Look at verse 9. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. There's the trouble right there. It was the Sabbath on that day. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him who was cured, it's the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who told me to take up my pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is it who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? Well, on the Sabbath. In addition of overreach, the Jewish authorities had all sorts of commandments orally that they had added to the commandment to rest on the Sabbath to make sure that you didn't even come close. For example, if you had a lamp and you failed to, to put it out before the Sabbath began, you could not extinguish the light because that was working, unless, of course, you were afraid of Gentiles or thieves, and they might see you, you could put out your light. But that was the only occasion. And if you had a toothache, you could not treat it with vinegar but if you just happened to be eating food that had a lot of vinegar, well, then you hadn't broken the Sabbath because you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. So just load up your food with vinegar, and that way you were not applying medicine to the sore tooth. You see how ridiculous it had become. Rather than rejoicing over the healing of the lame man, the Jews are more concerned about possible transgressions of their own traditions. They missed the moment of the man's liberation because they were focused on the law. You see, such devout and pious men, the fact that such devout and pious men could miss the Messiah because of their focus on their tradition ought to frighten us. What about me? I'm, I'm a big traditionalist. You see that? You know that? How about you? You're pretty traditional, aren't you? Are you so focused on form that you might miss the message? You know, the the real role of a leader is to expose people to change at the rate they can tolerate it. The real role of a leader is to expose folks to change at a rate they can tolerate it. Are there changes? This was a change for the Jews. How dare you work on the Sabbath? They missed the Messiah focused on tradition. We need to hear the word here. Verse 11, we learned that the man is less than noble. First of all, he tries to avoid conflict with authorities. They say, hey, you shouldn't be carrying your pallet on the Sabbath. And he says, oh, that, that, that guy who healed me, he told me to do it. Secondly, he doesn't even learn the name of the one who heals him. And thirdly, well, after he does learn the name of Jesus, he turns him in. 
wow, what a fella. Hadn't walked in 38 years. You think he'd be overwhelmed, indebted to his liberator. Well, the core of the controversy is that Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. Now, this happens in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel. In fact, at the center of all controversies between Jesus and the religious authorities is the fact that he was healing, working on the Sabbath. In fact, in this gospel and the other gospels is what leads them to want to kill Jesus. Did you know that? Because he works on the Sabbath, they want to kill him. That's how important their old traditions are to them rather than celebrating the presence of the Messiah. She calls us to examine our own response to the Messiah in our midst. How do we ourselves respond when Jesus has walked our way and declared that we can arise and walk and be free from the laming of sin and death? Do we live joyous lives because of what God has done for us in Christ? We must be careful that we do not turn our back on the very one who made us whole. 5.13 did not know did not know. But he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Though no one had ever given him a grander gift, he did not know who had healed him. In fact, the fact that Jesus sort of disappears, the language is, becomes invisible. He becomes invisible. He knows the authorities are coming, and he evades them by finding himself invisible in the crowd. 514, in the temple, in the temple. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse may befall you. Now turn back to John chapter 1 and verse 43. John chapter 1, verse 43 What I want you to see is that in John's gospel, Jesus finds people. If you're going to hide from Jesus, do it in Mark. Don't do it in John. If you do it in John, he's going to find you. Look here at 143. The next day, Jesus purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. You see that? He found Philip. Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Turn forward to John chapter 9, the blind man, which is an interesting parallel to this miracle story we'll see in just a moment. Not, the man has restored sight. They've kicked him out of the, out of the temple and 9.35, Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Whether it's Philip in chapter 1, the blind man in chapter 9, or the paralytic healed in chapter 5. Now turn back to chapter 5, verse 14. Jesus, in John's gospel, seeks people and finds them. 
Is Jesus searching for you today? Are you trying to be lost in the crowd and hide from him? And today at the preaching of the word, he has a divine appointment with you today. And he finds you. Jesus has already given this man three commands and now he gives a fourth, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. Now, if we were to look at the man in John chapter 9, you remember there's a man who's born blind and the disciples can't figure out how he's born blind because they thought all suffering was related to sin. And if you're born blind, well, when did you sin? In the womb? Did his parents sin? Where's the sin here? We can't figure it out. And Jesus said, neither he sinned nor his parents but he's suffering that through his healing, God might be glorified. But apparently in chapter 5, there is something in the man's life of sin that did cause his suffering. So sometimes in John, sin leads to suffering. And other times in John, there's suffering unrelated to sin. It's a mystery that by it, God might be glorified. Still true today, isn't it? I know most of the times I've suffered, I've contributed to it. There's other times it's just happenstance. We certainly can say that all suffering is not related to sin because Jesus, absolutely sinless, suffers the most being crucified. Jesus, absolutely sinless, suffers more than anyone, through crucifixion. But on this occasion, to this man, you need to make some life changes so that worse suffering does not come your way. Well, 15, I call it told the Jews. 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. He rats on Jesus for healing him. What a despicable character. He's not celebrating his Redeemer. He hands him in. 516, for this reason, for this reason, and for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Well, let me translate that a different way for you. With imperfect verbs, it goes something like this. The Jews kept on persecuting Jesus because he kept on doing healing on the Sabbath. It, this, is, this is the story he tells you. There are other stories where Jesus keeps on healing on the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have healed on the Sabbath. Guys, I got it wrong. No, he ignores them. He keeps on healing on the Sabbath. He puts human need above human tradition. He will not change. And so thus they keep on persecuting him. In 517, my father is working. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. 
We know that the one who creates is also the one who sustains. And yes, in Genesis, it is presented as rest so that we will know the rhythm of creation. But the Father is always in some sustaining way at work, and so is the Son. In fact, in Mark 2, Jesus has the gall to say that he, the Son of Man, is greater than the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Don't tell the Lord of the Sabbath what he cannot do on the Sabbath. He owns the Sabbath. Now, we have to be careful that we're not the God, the Father, nor the Son, and we are called to rest and worship on the Sabbath. It's not applicable to us. And then 5.18, to kill him, to kill him. For this cause the Jews therefore were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Do not miss the, the messianic message here. I myself am working. He makes a bold claim. My father is working. He's claiming that Yahweh is his father and that he is equal with Yahweh. They knew what he had claimed. He had committed blasphemy, and as a blasphemer, he must die. Well, in 19 through 24... The Father and the Son. The Father and the Son. Look at 19 through 24. This is probably, I've, con I've concluded this time through this passage, this tells me more about the relationship with God the Father to God the Son than any other passage. Have you missed it before? Look at it. Jesus therefore answered them, saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Nor that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Notice these things quickly about the Father and the Son. First of all, verse 19, the activity of the Son is defined by the activity of the Father. The activity of the Son is defined by the activity of the Father. Secondly, while the Father and the Son had their distinctions, their actions, their wills, and their purposes are in complete agreement, verse 19. While the Father and the Son have their functional distinctions, their actions, their wills, and their purposes are in complete agreement. Number three, the ministry of Jesus is anchored in and empowered by the love of the Father. Verse 20, the ministry of Jesus is anchored in and empowered by the Father. Number four, the Son will do greater works in such ways as hearers will be astonished. Verse 20 and 21, the Son will do greater works in which his hearers will be astonished. Number five, just as God can raise the dead in Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, 2 Kings, likewise, Jesus is free to give life to whomever he chooses, verse 21. Just like God can raise the dead, 
the Son can give life to whom he chooses. Number six, the Father has relegated judgment to the Son, verse 22. On that day, your judge will be the Son. The Father has relegated judgment to the Son. Number seven, though the Father and the Son are different in function, they are equal in honor, verse 23. Though they're different in function, they are equal in honor, verse 23. If you honor the Father, likewise you'll honor the Son. Number eight, all who truly believe in the Father will accept the Christ. If you truly believe in the Father, you will by necessity accept the Christ, verse 23. And finally, verse 24, this is the best one. Those who believed in the Father through the Son have passed from death to life. Those who have believed in the Father through the Son have passed from death to life. Verse 24. Aren't we all the blind, the lame, and the withered? Aren't we all gathered around the pool hoping to jump in first when the angel stirs the water? Is Jesus trying to find us today? Has he come looking for you? And then he poses that all-important question, do you wish to be well? Do you really? Do you want to leave brokenness and move to wholeness? Do you want to leave sin and move to salvation? Do you want to be set free from the heavy days of your past and the liberation of your future in Christ? Or have you become comfortable in the brokenness of your old ways? And have you, we even lost the desire to be made well? He's walking in our midst today, too. He asked me, and he asked you, I'm here, I'm present. Now, do you truly wish to experience the power of the Messiah? Let us pray. Oh, Jesus, thanks for walking in our midst today. We too are broken and need healing. We too need a Redeemer to command our wholeness. Father, I pray if there's any here in this room or any watching by way of television who have never honestly answered that question, do you wish to be made well? Do you wish to have Christ? Do you wish to be His? That today might be her day or His day to say, I'm not going to miss Him this time. He was looking for me and He found me. And oh yes, Savior, make me well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.